0: You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Love Cast, www.savagelovecast.com. If you're
1: stuck in a relationship quandary or if you're looking for sexual
2: was that guy. I was that guy at the gym on Sunday. That guy sitting on the equipment, sitting on a bench on his phone the whole time, getting a really good thumb workout, breaking a palm sweat. But it was because I looked at my emails. I looked at my Savage Love mails on my phone and there was a very distressed email from a young person, young gay man who just came out to his family and it wasn't going well. Wasn't going the way he had hoped it would go. And so if you will allow me a little coming out 101, I know we've covered this. Sometimes I think, well, I wrote a column coming out 101 20 years ago before this kid that I ended up in an email exchange with on Sunday at the gym before he was born. Didn't he read that column? I talked about this seven, eight years ago on the Lovecast. Why wasn't he listening to the Lovecast before he hit puberty and realized he was gay? So there are new listeners, new readers all the time. Some of them are young. Some of them haven't dug through the archives, And if you'll indulge me, regular readers and listeners, I'm going to do a little coming out 101 for those guys. It is important to remember when you come out that the skies aren't going to open and the sun isn't going to shine and you're not going to look down and Ryan Gosling is going to be sucking your dick because that never happens. First, because Ryan Gosling is straight, Ryan Gosling doesn't suck dicks, and it has never happened that somebody comes out and they look down and there's Ryan Gosling sucking their dick. So if that's your expectation, that everything is going to be wonderful and glorious the instant you come out – I'm here from the future to tell you that that's not typically how it works, unfortunately. Sometimes people come out to their conservative families and get the reaction they did not expect. They get support from their conservative families. Their conservative families pull 180s. Again, that empathy gap we talk about with conservatives and Republicans. Your kid came out as gay. Fuck you and fuck your fag kid. Not going to change my position on queer people, on their lives, on their humanity, on their rights. My kid came out, ah, suddenly I see the light. And that's good when you see people choose their own flesh and blood over their biases and over bigotry, but we should all be able to choose... Flesh and blood, whether it's ours or not, over bias and bigotry. Republicans, conservatives tend to have a problem with that. Anyway, sometimes people come out to their liberal parents and get a reaction they didn't expect. The liberal parent who is fine with other people's children being gay, not so fine with their own kid being gay or lesbian or bi or trans, and they freak the fuck out. But the most important thing to bear in mind when you come out is that the shit comes immediately. The negative is usually the first thing that hits you, a tsunami of shit. If your family, liberal, or conservative freaks out, it's going to be the day you come out. The estrangement you may feel from siblings, uh, f- the friends you may lose, the church you may not be able to go to anymore. All the conflict and stress is immediate. The bad comes right away. If your coming out is going to be rough, individual results may vary. Some people have a very smooth coming out process. But if you're coming out is going to be rocky, there are the rocks. There's the shit immediately. And it's hard right away, hard out of the gate. What you have to bear in mind, what I was telling this kid I was emailing with from the gym on Sunday, is the good, the good takes time to come. The shit that fell on you, you dig out from under, in time. Your family will come around or you will see less of them. The friends you lost, who were never really your friends, will be replaced by friends who like you and love you for the person that you actually are. And... Not Ryan Gosling, but somebody's going to come along and suck your dick in time. But good, that takes time. That's what you have to remember when you come out. You also have to remember, as was the case with this poor kid that I was talking with on Sunday, that not all queer people are good. When you come out, you will meet some terrific queer people out there in the world. And you will meet some terrifically shitty queer people out there in the world. Queer people are good and queer people are bad, just like straight people can be good or bad. Just because somebody is queer, they don't get a benefit of the doubt. They shouldn't get the benefit of the doubt. You still have to move into the queer world with your bullshit detectors fully functioning and make judgments based on people's individual characteristics and traits, not on just the fact that they're queer. Everything I'm saying here is a little contrary to the coming out Narrative or story or bill of goods that's commonly sold. There's a lot of people out there in LGBT land who communicate with young queer people or or send a message to young queer people that coming out is the end of all of your troubles in reality. Coming out is the beginning of new troubles. It is the end, hopefully of the closet, which itself is a burden and a trouble. It is the end of having to tell lies. It is the end of having to hide It is the beginning of potentially a conflict with your family that you can come through, that your family can come around. It is beginning of the end of some friendships and relationships that were grounded in the lie person that you aren't anymore. And it is the beginning of your romantic life, beginning of your adult life. And you will get your heart stomped on and you will have friends who aren't really your friends who betray you or take advantage of you. You You'll get broken up with, you will break up with people. But you won't be in the closet anymore. You will be your authentic self. And the troubles that are in your life, they won't just be troubles that you can overcome. Troubles that are worth overcoming. Life is a log. Life is a fight. Life is conflict and stress and process and joy. And it's all scrambled up together. And once you're out, you get to tackle all of that. And it is tremendously rewarding. It is also an effort and sometimes a painful one. Coming out is not the end of your troubles. Coming out is the beginning of new and better troubles. And you will get through it. And you will find your people. And you will find your lovers. And you will find your friends. And you will find your place. And your place isn't with every queer person you're ever going to meet. Because you're not going to like every queer person you're ever going to meet. And every queer person you meet is not necessarily going to like you. But there is a space and a world out there. Including a world full of straight people. Who are good and decent. And can be a part of your chosen family, but you can't access that world until you come out. And when you come out, the shit comes immediately. Ryan Gosling sucking your dick or someone who resembles Ryan Gosling sucking your dick. That comes later. That comes in time. Coming up on today's show, tons of your Q, lots of my, a Dr. Sarah Pentliggy from Planned Parenthood is here. She tackles a medical question with us on the micro edition of the Savage Lovecast and a bunch more questions on the subscription magnum edition of the savage love cast that you can subscribe to at savage lovecast.com it's a longer show more questions more guests more segments no ads go to savage lovecast.com if you want the longer ad-free version of the Lovecast. and now your calls
3: hi there dan and nancy and the tech savvy at rescue um, i have a parenting question Um, about
4: explaining BDSM or not explaining it to a preteen who would like to wear leather chokers. I'm going to find a compromise for some other style of choker, but I would like to try to explain to her why I don't feel that this is appropriate for a preteen to wear um, without getting too heavy into precisely what people
3: are doing when they're adults.
4: Um, We are definitely trying to raise her in a sex positive way and don't want to hide that people are going to be doing a variety of things later on in life, but want to discourage a young girl from wearing a leather choker with a D-ring in the
5: front.
2: I'm so torn. On the one hand, mom, the harder you fight this leather choker, the more your daughter's going to want it and the longer she's going to wear it when she gets it. And she will get one. Even if you disapprove, even if mom won't buy it for her, a friend will buy it for her or she will walk into some rocker Hesher store, not a sex toy shop, but a rocker kind of Hesher torn up goth clothing store and be able to buy one herself with the money she saved babysitting or whatever. But on the other hand, I have so many friends who have young daughters who have preteen daughters and and daughters who are now adults that I've watched grow up. And there was a point in their life where they began to be on the receiving end of unwelcome sexual attention from creeps, from men on street corners, from men on buses, uh, from men on subways, from men in fucking airports, businessmen, unwelcome, unnerving, fucking inappropriate, lascivious looks or comments, sometimes touching. And so if I was the parent of a preteen daughter i would be concerned about her wearing something that for many people sexualizes the wearer and maybe an invitation to initiate a conversation with the wearer about their fashion choices that is a gambit to pivot to a conversation about sex that your daughter your preteen daughter may not want to have so those are my hands on the one hand the harder you fight it the sooner she'll get one the longer she'll wear it she'll just hide it from you on the other hand Sending your daughter out into the world wearing a dog collar or allowing her to take herself out into the world wearing a dog collar is going to invite attention from assholes and creeps. Assholes and creeps who may be paying attention to your daughter anyway, even in the absence of a dog collar. My friends with preteen and now teen and now adult daughters, they weren't running around wearing dog collars. So not wearing a dog collar didn't immunize them from this kind of unwelcome, unnerving lascivious assholery attention all right all that said pivoting back to your original sort of dilemma how do you explain bdsm to your preteen kid well i don't think that you necessarily have to have a conversation about bdsm if she wants to wear a choker with a d-ring in it not everybody who wears those things is engaging in bdsm for i think probably the majority of people who are out there wearing them it is a fashion statement it is the goth stage of development and not broadcasting to the world that they are kinky, that this is a submissive collar. It is just something they think is fun and funky and edgy and something they know drives mom bananas, which of course incentivizes the wearing of it because there's nothing preteens enjoy more than driving their parents Bananas. So you need to be chill and calm about this. You need to say to your daughter instead, BDSM is a sexual practice that adults can engage in consensually. <laughs> that involves uh, negotiated power exchange. And as cops and robbers for grown-ups with your pants off and orgasms, you don't need to have that conversation with your daughter. I think the conversation you have with your daughter is this is going to be a beacon to creeps. Creeps are going to see this and come at you want to talk to you. And that's not your fault. You should be able to wear whatever you want, go wherever you want, make all your own choices. All women should be able to do that. But I worry that at your young age, you won't be able to deflect or handle as deftly as a slightly older girl or woman would be able to deflect or handle these sorts of interactions. So I worry about Not your choices, but the choices that might be made by asshole men and boys out there in the world when they see you running around wearing a dog collar. I don't want men to think they can treat you like a dog, honey. And there's a lot of men out there who treat women like dogs who aren't wearing dog collars, who feel entitled to treat women like animals and objects. And those are not the men I want gravitating toward you. So it's something to think about while you make your fashion choices that of course you should be able to make without having to contemplate these things, but we live in the real world and not the perfect theoretical world. And you will have to contemplate these things as you make these choices. And then you're going to have to back off. Then you're going to have to be Zen about it. Like every other parent of every other kid who went through a rocker, Hesher, gother stage, they can tell you the ones who got through it, that the harder they fought it, the longer it lasted. So if your daughter gets that collar, grin and bear it, roll your eyes and keep your mouth shut, and hopefully, she will be out of it sooner rather than later.
6: Hi, Dan. I'm a 42 year old man living on the East Coast. Um, I have had herpes since I was 19. At this point, or genital herpes, let me specify. At this point in my life, I, my breakouts are very few and far between, uh, they happen once every few years. I am going to a Dark Odyssey event soon. And I wonder what my responsibility for uh, disclosure of this is at that type of event. I'm not sure if I need to have that conversation with everybody I encounter at the event or if I need to, or if I if that's just kind of an assumed risk and I don't need to. I'm not sure what the protocol is for that.
2: According to the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control... About 16-ish percent of adults between age 14 and 49 have genital herpes. Now, I expect the percentage is going to be higher in a community of swingers. People who have multiple sexual partners are going to be at increased risk of exposure. So I agree with you, caller, that some risk of exposure should be assumed by folks who are opting in to, to participate uh, in organized swinging, or even disorganized swinging. That said, I do think that you should disclose. I don't think you have to run around the event telling absolutely everyone you meet that you have herpes. It's something that you might want to share with people you would like to or are about to get intimate with, including the relevant details. Like, you haven't had an outbreak in a very long time. There is some evidence out there to suggest that people who haven't had an outbreak in a very long time are less infectious. If you are treating your herpes, and that is one of the reasons you haven't had an outbreak in a very long time. If you're taking valacyclovir, which is shown to be really effective in decreasing the transmission rate in what they call serodiscordant couples, where one person has herpes in the relationship and the other doesn't, that's something that you should also discuss and offer up. Herpes, HPV, these sexually transmitted infections that can pass from skin to skin contact. So condoms will provide some protection, but not uh, as effective protection as condoms provide when you're talking about HIV or gonorrhea or syphilis or chlamydia. People who rub their skin against lots of other people's skins are kinda signing up for a higher chance of acquiring both of these sexually transmitted infections, both of which in most cases are not that big a deal for most people. Most people who have herpes uh, have one or two outbreaks and then very few going forward. Most people who have HPV don't even know that they have been exposed or infected with HPV. Uh, It's not get HPV, get cancer. Uh, And it doesn't have to be get HPV anymore because there are really effective vaccines that prevent the transmission of HPV and can prevent HPV-related cancers. Go get vaccinated. If you have kids, get them vaccinated just in case they wind up becoming organized swingers one day when they grow up. You're going to want to get them vaccinated. Even if they don't, you're going to want to get them vaccinated. Back to you, caller. I'm really torn. It feels like you shouldn't have to disclose. It feels like people who go to a swinging event and have sex with lots and lots and lots of people should be aware enough of the risks that they are assuming that they are taking on to be grown-ups about the fact that they very likely have been, or will be exposed to herpes, perhaps HPV as well at some point, even if they are using condoms as of course they should be. And that this is when you weigh the risks versus the benefits of this lifestyle of the swinging lifestyle, the risks are the higher chance of sexually transmitted infections becoming a part of your life or a part of your reality versus the benefits of a much more active sex life and a lot of pleasure and a lot of intimacy and contact and friendships that are sexualized. And that is something that's a benefit that a lot of people are willing to incur those risks for. But you will meet people out there in organized swinging land who are completely irrational or in denial about the risks that they're assuming by participating in group sex or multi-partner sex or having uh, many sexual partners that they believe that they're somehow immune or they have some force field around them and it's – or that anybody that they might be attracted to couldn't be someone who would have a sexually transmitted infection. Otherwise, they would intuit that somehow and not be attracted to that person. People engage in all sorts of magical thinking, irrational thinking when it comes to themselves and, and their risks. Uh, you know, sexually transmitted infections are something that happen to dirty people and not nice people and not careful people and not kind people, all of which is – bullshit but those are the lies people tell themselves and those are the lies that can trip someone like you up when you disclose when you are honest it may cost you an assignation it may cost you a sexual connection but you wouldn't want to sleep with someone who's that stupid would you you wouldn't want to put your dick in someone that dumb and like i always say if you tell someone this one thing about you you have hiv you're Zero viral load. You're not infectious. They freak out. Uh, you tell them that you're kinky. They kink phobic. They freak out. You've told them you, tell them you have herpes and they're completely irrational about what herpes is and, and how dire it is and, and what their risks for it are considering where you will be telling them. And they freak the fuck out. Yeah, HIV, kink, herpes. You told them one thing about you and they told you when they freaked out everything you needed to know about them because you don't want to fuck around with them because they're not rational. They're nuts. The odds, of course, that you will disclose to someone who also has herpes at an event of organized swingers, pretty high. So it could be a non-issue. I'm not saying everybody at swingers events has herpes. But multi-partner sex, group sex, having many sexual partners, higher risk for and higher prevalence of is just a fact. And that's not sex phobic. That's just the epidemiological reality.
0: Hi Dan. I'm a single heterosexual woman. And so a while back, uh maybe eight months ago, I'd just gone through a breakup and so I was kind of just looking for a no strings attached sexual relationship. So I went to Craigslist and I found someone and we had a great night and we ended up hooking up very regularly for the last eight months, like at least once a week. And um you know, I thought, oh, it was great. He, we're, we're sexually compatible. There's no strings attached. That's just what I need right now. And last night, the spirit moved me to look up his tattoo artist on Instagram just because I liked his work. And um, I saw that his piece was was tagged on there. And so I, I of course, was like, let me look at his uh, his account. And lo and behold, I see that He is married, and he has two young kids, and his wife is pregnant. And I just, I haven't contacted him. Uh, He hasn't contacted me. He doesn't know. I know this information, but I have no idea how to approach this. I want to yell at him and say he's an asshole, but I'm also trying to take the high road. Um, Anyway, I would love your advice on this. Thank you.
2: What part of no-strings-attached Craigslist hookup don't you understand? Yeah, if he's cheating on his wife, uh, who's pregnant at home with their other two children, that's kind of shitty. But you don't know what's going on with his wife. You don't know. if They have a DADT arrangement. You don't know anything. All you know is that you met a stranger on the internet, on a hookup chunk of a larger site, on a hookup site, on Craigslist was looking for sex with again no strings attached for reasons now you know what those reasons are maybe he and his wife don't have a strong sexual connection maybe he is cheating on her like crazy and is a complete cat and an asshole but you don't know you can talk to him about it you could ask him about it you can tell him how you innocently stumbled your way to his instagram account And then maybe he's going to have an explanation or a reason that makes sense to you. Or maybe not. Maybe that'll be the last you hear of and from him. But this is what you signed up for. You signed up for a no-strings-attached sexual connection with someone who, because it's NSA, doesn't have to answer to you about their motives, about anything else that's going on in their life. And likewise, you don't have to answer to them. You can wonder about what's up with him. You can ask him about what's up with him. But I don't think that given how you two came together, you have a right to burst into his life or burst into his partner's life and start flipping over tables. Maybe he's just fucking around right now while the kids are young and the wife is so stressed out and maybe the sex has collapsed and seeking a partner just for sex outside his marriage is making it possible for him to stay married and stay sane. And there's a light at the end of the tunnel. There's a point at which their two or three kids are not going to be so tiny and helpless and not be so exhausting for mom. And hopefully for him too. Hopefully he's pitching in too. And their sexual connection will reestablish. I've heard from couples where that's exactly what happened. The sex collapsed when the kids were young, the person who didn't give birth to those kids. It's not just men I've heard from in this circumstance. Also, also, the non-birthing half of lesbian couples I've heard from in this circumstance, they, on the side, did what they needed to do, not had to do, or what they felt they needed to do, to take care of themselves sexually, so that they could continue to be there for their partners, for their kids, under one roof. And when the sexual connection within the relationship revived, they stopped seeking sex outside the relationship. Maybe that's what's going on here. And you blundering in or bursting in and flipping over tables could prevent that from playing out in this direction where one day the cheating will be over and done and a suppressed memory and they will be a happy family and mom and dad will have a good sexual connection again going forward and blah, 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 blah. You just don't know. And the terms of service here, the implied terms of service when you're having NSA sex with someone, you don't get to be judge, jury, and executioner. When you find out something about the reason why they were seeking NSA sex with you, if the reason why someone was seeking NSA sex with you offends your scruples, offends your moral code, you stop fucking that person. And it should be easy to stop fucking that person and to get them out of your life because they weren't that in your life and you weren't in their life much either to start with. That was the deal that you two struck.
4: Hi, Dan. Um, I'm a 25-year-old bisexual woman, and I'm calling with a question about a kink I'd like to explore. This guy and I have been seeing each other for about a month and a half, um, and I, I really, really like him. He's absolutely unlike anyone else I've ever been with, and this has just keeps getting better and better. Um, he's a lot more experienced with kink than I am, and I've been actually really been loving learning about it from him. It's, it's very exciting to me, and I've been discovering you know, some things about myself in this process. And one of the things I've discovered is that um, I think I'm interested in what I only know how to describe as primal play, which is kind of like animalistic or like instinctive sort of sex. Um, And we kind of already do it a little bit, but I want to explore it more, just like take it to another level. You know, we already incorporate and he's dominant and I'm submissive, so we we do that. It kind of plays into that and we, we, we do it as well. But there's a fantasy that I'd really like to try. I think I'd really like to be... Hunted, kind of as like a primal prey sort of thing. Um, basically, fancy red, like go into his basement, um, you know, and it's, he captures me and like ties ties me up or holds me down and like you know fucks me and I struggle to get away and I'd sort of like be like an animal or a monster and like growl at me and you know do that sort of thing. Um, and he just holds me down no matter how much I beg him to stop. I, it's something I'm really turned on by, so I really want to do it with him. And I've tried like googling around for information or like better videos or something like this, but there really isn't. Can't, I can't seem to find anything. So I was wondering if you knew what this is actually like called. Some of you have better terms to work with, or like just places where I can find more information about this. You know, the primal pair relationship, or the a primal type of relationship, or this particular fantasy I have.
2: What are you talking about? I'm really confused. You laid out your fantasy, and I and I, I don't <laughs> quite understand. I mean, I I think I understand what you're talking about. I don't understand why you think it's complicated or difficult to describe or necessarily even
3: yeah.
2: elaborate. And when you say hunted, that that was the word I got hung up on. When you say hunted and prey and primal, what do you mean by hunted? Like stalk through the woods like like a deer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I don't
5: know. Well, I guess that's kind of why I, I, I asked because I don't fully understand it myself. But like just the... Uh, the the idea of like being like chase is very very exhilarating mm-hmm. and it's like
2: well that's why tag is so much fun when we're kids it's always some, I, I love to emphasize a lot a lot of BDSM play is just games we played when we were kids but now with orgasms and pants off and and consent and and adults right but you, you know we played this game catch one catch all when I was a kid where. Uh, in the in, in the neighborhood I grew up in Chicago, where eventually you know it started out with one person being it, and they would run around and hide, and then tag people, and it eventually turned into one person wasn't it, and and, and like three hundred other kids were, and and that kid was being stalked, and that kid was the prey for this huge group, and that was like you said, it was it was exhilarating, that feeling of being stalked and hunted, but then you said something about being you know in his basement. And I was like, what you were, st- you're being hunted in his basement <laughs> or you're like kidnapped off the street and taken to a basement. What is it? Th- what's your fantasy when you masturbate? What runs through your head?
5: Yeah. Well, so this is actually, I realized harkens back to something that I had, uh, like a, it was like a seminar I attended in college where this woman who, um, she's like a sexologist, don't exactly remember her name, but she was talking about like, just like, <laughs> you know, communicating with your partners what you want and Mm-hmm. She told a story where, like, she explained that she had, she had this fantasy where she wanted someone to, like, like, screw her with a monster mask on, and, like, the the story she told was really funny, so, and I won't get into it, but... That's
2: just Beauty and the Beast shit.
5: I guess, I, I, realized, I kind of, like, realized that after the call, I was like, this seems a lot like Beauty and the Beast kind of but <laughs> I don't, like, like I don't, like, I've like, I tried Googling this stuff, and there, like, nothing of, of relevance or interest comes up to me.
2: Well, but but I think this is so much simpler than some elaborate BDSM scenario. You are aroused uh-huh. by the idea of being ravished, being taken, being held against your will, being held down. Uh-huh. It's not even like you'd need a bunch of BDSM gear or a fully tricked out dungeon to realize this. And, and this yeah. is a really common I mean, fantasy does, among yeah. This is a really common fantasy among women. A lot of women. You know, sometimes a lot of people will call them rape fantasies, but it's more accurate uh-huh. and a lot of people are more comfortable with, and and I support this choice, to call them ravishment fantasies. Because you want to be taken by oh. someone you want to be taken by. You want to be ravished.
5: Yeah.
2: And you want to be able yeah,
5: to, to say yeah. no
2: and stop and have a safe word that would make it stop so that if things got out of hand, you can call a halt to it or, call, or pause it yeah. and then renegotiate and jump back in. But your fantasy, right. I think you're overthinking it.
5: Yeah, I mean, I think I'm also, uh, maybe also overthinking it because I I haven't been seeing him that long, but I guess I don't, like, I don't really have a whole lot to lose because he's very open-minded and hasn't,
2: I haven't scared him off yet, so. (laughs) Well, then tell him or have him listen to the show as we, like, unpack what this fantasy is, you know, and this is not a hard one to make happen. You know, I don't think that you want to be, you don't want to stage something where you're kidnapped off the street because that would alarm others and make others feel (laughs) safe.
5: I know. Yeah. I, I, yeah. It's definitely not something like that, but I, I, what I will say last night, he and I actually, we went out last night and um, it was like, we'd gone to a show and it was like kind of a long evening and then we were walking home and there was this empty parking lot where we ended up playing tag and it was really, really exciting. I think it was kind of moving in the direction that I want, like the, that I guess kind of, I guess I'm just trying to figure out, Catch what kind one, of catch feeling all. it as I want, and then replicate that feeling the
2: most dangerous prey in catch one catch all you want <laughs> to be you want to be the only person in a game of catch one catch all who 's not it who's being yeah. chased down something about running uh-huh. around and being chased gets your adrenaline pumping, and something about adrenaline pumping when we're uh-huh. adults like ties in our junk in a way that it didn 't thank God when we were kids
5: <laughs> yeah and you want that feeling and I'm sure <laughs> there's like
2: large public parks where you can get that feeling. Uh-huh. Near where you live.
5: Yeah, that's... that's uh, uh-huh. And just, yeah, so you said it's called ravishment, right? It's kind of what we were talking about before
2: then. Yeah, ravishment. And then he, he takes okay. you and holds you down and, and you know, quote-unquote forces you to do something that you would like him to do to and with you. Yeah. But if you yeah. want to beg him to stop and he knows not to stop, you have to have a safe word that's like from left field, yeah. like Scaramucci or something yeah. that no one would ever actually say during sex. So that, you <laughs> That's know, a really
5: it, good safe word.
2: Yeah, Skarmuji, I think, can only exist now as a skateboard. And Scalia was another <laughs> safe word choice. I was uh, endorsing about a year and a half ago. Uh, you want to have a safe yeah. word. So particularly if you want to beg someone to stop and they know not to stop, you got to have a safe word. But this yeah. you're, uh, yeah. I, I think the reason you are so nervous about this is this fantasy really is. Uh, it means a lot to you and it turns you on a lot. And it turns you on to talk uh-huh. about it. And then you begin to bumble and fumble, not because you can't articulate it, but because articulating it arouses you.
5: <laughs>
2: and that makes yeah. it harder to talk about. Like you get, you know, you get a little shaky mm-hmm. when you try to describe something to someone that you would like to have happen. And you're describing your fantasy and you, you, you know, part of your you know, erotic imagination is living that fantasy while you're yeah. describing it. So it might help if you wrote it down for him. Mm-hmm.
5: Yeah.
2: And maybe not. I think
5: that's a really good idea.
2: Maybe not an email. It sounds like you've just started fucking around with this guy. Like, write it down on a piece of paper and share it with him.
5: Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That's actually a really good idea because I'm often, uh, I think I can express myself better in writing anyway. So, you know, I I can write it on a piece of paper and we can, I can have him read it and we can talk about it.
2: And it's simple. What you're after is simple. Okay. Find a big public park where he can chase you down. Be sure to have big smiles on your face and laughing if there are other people around so that people don't think that you are a woman in distress so that some open carry asshole doesn't start shooting at your, at your boyfriend or nobody calls 911. But if you are alone, like have him really chase you down and carry you back to the car and drive back to your place and drag you down to the basement and then you're just being ravished. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds great. I think I should put
5: that in writing.
2: You should. And if you want him to wear a monster ma- and if you want him to wear a monster mask, like tell him that too.
5: Yeah, I I mean I I'm pretty sure I'm pretty sure he could be up there. he's a very like weird eccentric guy just like me and has all kinds of fun props. So I think that we could probably work something out.
2: That's also something that makes it harder to talk to him about it. You have this fantasy you've probably had it for a long time. Yeah. You're finally with someone who if you share this thing, it's going to happen.
5: Yeah.
2: And that makes the stakes higher? Yeah. <laughs> Well, you had good practice here describing your thing and what you want to have happen with someone who's never going to do it with you. That's me. And that should make it easier to go to this guy and tell him what you want. Or just have him put the earbuds in and listen to our conversation. Yeah.
5: Yeah. All, that, all of that sounds great. I actually just turned him on to your podcast, so I hope you with me to it.
2: There you go. Problem yeah. solved.
5: Problem good solved. Uh, thank you, Dan.
2: So joining us now is Dr. Sarah Pentlicky staff physician at Planned Parenthood for the Great Northwest and Hawaiian Islands. Thank you for coming in. Thanks for having me. We get a lot of questions, people with medical questions, people with questions about sexually transmitted infections and birth control. And I always think we should have somebody from Planned Parenthood drop by. Huge supporter. Love you guys. Love the work that you do. Think it's so important and am endlessly frustrated by the grief uh, and the bullshit that gets heaped up on Planned Parenthood by the opportunistic sexist Sexphobic assholes of the world.
7: Well, thanks for your support and your sympathy, empathy for our struggles. Um, and yeah, I'm happy to be here to talk about sexually transmitted diseases, health. contraception, health.
2: How long have you been a staff position at Planned Parenthood?
7: Uh, just over three years.
2: And where did you come to Planned Parenthood from, right? From medical school?
7: No, I was in um, Philadelphia at the University of Pennsylvania before it.
2: And why go work for Planned Parenthood? It's such a high-fire position uh, in a lot of ways, like There are a lot of people out there who think that everybody works for Planned Parenthood has horns. Um, Why was it important to you to to work for Planned Parenthood and work with Planned Parenthood?
7: Um, Particularly because of the mission and the overall goals of the organization, I think, really align with why I do what I do and why I became an obstetrician gynecologist. Mm -hmm. Um, So it really felt like I was fulfilling sort of all of that training to – be at Planned Parenthood to do that work.
2: And how much time do you get to spend in the Hawaiian Islands?
7: None. <laughs> None? But it's in well, your, for vacation. It's in your title. I know. I know. Maybe one day. Maybe somebody's listening and they'll they'll send me to Hawaii to do some work.
2: Can you put in for a transfer to a Hawaiian Island?
7: Possibly, yeah. Which
2: one would you transfer to if you could?
7: I've only been to Kauai. So Me too.
2: Be, I've only been to Kauai. That'd
7: be lovely. Let's go <laughs> but, together. We
2: okay. can open a clinic.
7: Perfect. That sounds I'll great. I'll be the
2: receptionist because literally it's all I'm qualified to do is answer phones and take calls. I think you'd be great at it. Oh, thank you. That's very sweet of you to say. <laughs> if you know, there's one thing that you want people to keep in their minds when they hear Planned Parenthood in the news, when they hear the name of the organization, what is that one thing that you wish came instantly to mind?
7: Quality, accessible health care.
2: Not just for women?
7: Not just for women. For men, women all people, and not just sexually transmitted diseases, not just um, pregnancy, counseling. Uh, We do primary care and um, lots of other services that people need. um,
2: Including abortion services. Including
7: abortion services. Um, But that we are really a full-service healthcare facility, oftentimes, sometimes the only clinic that people have access to in certain parts of rural America.
2: For basic healthcare needs, for for cancer screenings, for... uh,
7: even hypertension screenings, diabetes screenings, depression screenings. Um, so it really is a full facili- a facility with full access to healthcare for all people.
2: And today you're going to be a full-service sex advice professional on my Goofy Sex Advice podcast, and I'm so glad to have you here. Thanks. I'm happy to be here. Ready for your first question? Ready. Here we go.
8: Hey, Dan. I am a 30-year-old straight woman calling from the East Coast. Um, my question is for the plant Parenthood physician. I got an IUD about six months ago. So um, the first three months, essentially my period nonstop. stop um, so I didn't really take close attention to it. And now that it's kind of started to even out, um, I've noticed the smell is a little different. Um, so um, my question is if um, an IUD can change the acidity or the um, uh, pH balance in your vagina because, um, first of all, it was just summertime, but I've had this body for 30 years and I know how things smell. So I'm thinking maybe it's the IUD. Um, it's not a very pleasant smell and I'm not really a fan of it. So if it is the IEG um and it's not affecting my period, I'm probably gonna have it uh yanked and go back into the pill. Um but maybe if I just need more time for it to kinda even out, which is basically what all my friends are telling me, they're like it's great, just wait for it and you know, everything will figure itself out in time. But it's been you know, for a year. Um, so I'd love to know if they have any input on that and what I should do about it. Um, thanks so much.
2: So Can an IUD change the pH balance of your vagina? Can it make uh, you smell in a way you didn't smell before? Or could this be a coincidence?
7: There are lots of people studying this. Not so much studying the pH changes, but whether or not IUDs can change the bacterial makeup of the vagina.
2: Mm -hmm. Which affects scent.
7: Which can affect scent, which can affect potentially um, pH down Mm -hmm. the road. Um, But people are starting to look at whether or not IUDs affect flora. The Data are a little equivocal. There does seem to be some studies that show that there are some changes, other studies that aren't. Um, One thing that is key um, is the fact that she switched from birth control pills to an IUD. Ah. There is some thought that birth control pills do change the flora, perhaps even in a beneficiary way to um, increase the good flora of the vagina, flora being bacteria. And Um, a
2: quick – programming note there are bacteria in your gut there's bacteria in your ear canals there's bacteria in your mouth it's not like the vagina is home to bacteria and the rest of everyone else's bodies are free from this kind of flora we are walking flora boxes
7: absolutely and we need that flora and we need it in certain amounts of each bacteria to have a healthy balance in the gut on our skin in the vagina
2: i just didn't want people out there who are stupid to suddenly go, ew, vaginas are full of bacteria. No, you are full of bacteria.
7: Correct. We are all full of bacteria. Um, but thank you. Yes, true story. Birth control pills potentially can um, improve the flora of the vagina so that the fact that she switched from birth control pills to an IUD also could have been a, a not a coincidence, but that that's what changed. Mm-hmm. And not so much that the IUD caused this, but that the pills were actually doing something to prevent this. Um, or just be different, not mm-hmm. necessarily even good or bad. That it's just different. Now. So,
2: someone who's going through this or having this particular problem, what do they do? Remove the IUD, go back on birth control, do you do your own controlled study? Well, my uh, first how do you solve this question is,
7: uh, is Has she actually gotten checked to see if she has something called bacterial vaginosis, which mm-hmm. is something that just does happen for lots of reasons? Um, and one of those reasons could be the fact that she was bleeding for so long, sometimes having. Blood in the vagina for a long period of time can change things. So my first thought is for her to make sure that she doesn't have bacterial vaginosis. And what that's, is
2: bacterial vaginosis? That's an
7: overgrowth of a normal bacteria that is now in too high of a level and is causing um, – usually causes discharge and causes a bad smell. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's treatable. So if that's what it is, she can go in, get tested, get treated and potentially this smell will go away.
2: And that's what my hunch was initially. Like could it be a coincidence? Right. That at the same time roughly that she was getting an IUD, she –
7: well and develop a case that she of
2: bacterial was, vaginosis,
7: right, especially because she was bleeding mm-hmm. but, um as, as she mentioned in the beginning, so um that could be a perfect setup for her to have bacterial vaginosis. It could also be that things have changed and they're not bad, they're just different, and that's up to her if that if if it doesn't get better, it doesn't change better in her mind. I don't know that there's anything necessarily wrong um that she prefers to be on pills because of what you know her experience is in terms of what the Smell is, or what it feels like for her.
2: So the first adv- first advice for it is get to a clinic, get mm-hmm. tested, figure out whether you have bacterial vaginosis or not, um, and then figure out whether it was the pill or not, right? Going off the pill or not that could have, and if it was going off the pill that resulted in her having this different smell that she finds unpleasant, does that mean then she needs to go back on the pill?
7: I mean, it's an option, certainly. Mm-hmm. I. It depends on what her goals are for contraception. An IUD is going to be a more effective method. So if efficacy is her primary goal, she may still choose to use the IUD instead of the pills.
2: Mm
7: -hmm. Um, Are there people who
2: are on IUDs who use IUDs who also take the pill? There are. For different reasons. Correct.
7: Um, So it's possible she could do both if Mm -hmm. she prefers that. Some people feel like that's overkill, but it's definitely an option. Um, there also may be differences between the, the two sort of general types of IUDs that we have. There's a copper IUD and there's a hormonal IUD. Mm-hmm. And there may also be some differences there. So she may find that the IUD she has now is doing this, but the alternative IUD may not do that. So I feel like she has options. Um, but first would be just to make sure it's not something really easily treated.
2: And get to a clinic. For sure. To figure this out. Before we leave the topic of uh, hormonal birth control pills and and how they can affect people and the changes, there is a body of research out there that shows that going on or off hormonal birth controls can affect your libido affect the kind of people you're attracted to. I remember there was a bit of a panic about 10 years ago when one of these first studies were released that people were meeting and dating and marrying while on hormonal birth control then going off hormonal birth control and finding themselves less attracted to the person that they married when they were on hormonal birth control. Is that an issue that comes up? Do you see that often? Libido changes, uh, uh, types of people you might be attracted to changes once you go on and off hormonal birth control or is that kind of a sex panic and that was just bullshit and exaggerated?
7: Um, I've actually not seen the study about people that you're attracted to, which I would love to read. Um, but definitely people come in with libido changes. Mm. Um, and that's fairly easy to wrap your head around just in terms of there are definitely hormonal changes that w- when you're cycling and not on certain birth control methods that would change when you're on and off them. So, I mean, it certainly biologically makes sense that you would have ch- could have changes in libido. Some people mm. feel it. Some people don't. Um some people start birth control at such a young age they have had no idea that that's what was happening mm-hmm. um so they don't realize it till they stop it later on in life um but yes it's totally feasible and i believe people when they tell me that's what's happening and
2: generally the hormonal birth control can lower your libido you don't hear it from people who say i went on hormonal birth control my libido went crazy
7: i have heard people say that they um Felt like they had a better sex life on birth control because they now felt very confident that they weren't going to get pregnant, mm. that they actually had a lot of
2: stress in the moment.
7: around getting pregnant. So now that they had a great method of birth control, felt actually like they could enjoy it. They could, they could enjoy it more mm-hmm. because they were not so worried about it.
9: Hey, Dan, this is a call for the upcoming Planned Parenthood episode. I had a question regarding IUDs. Um, I remember when I was with my ex-girlfriend, we were trying to figure out a... Um, a birth control alternative that didn't uh, involve the uh, the pills because she tried like a variety of them and they all gave her a bad reaction in one way or the other and um, upon researching some alternatives it seemed like the copper IUD was a popular choice but I remember she said I don't think she went to Planned Parenthood but I think she went to maybe like her primary care doctor or something and they had told her that they don't put IUDs into women until they had their first child and I guess the rationale was like it, the IUD could somehow I know you can take them out and stuff but I guess the rationale again was something like it could affect the pregnancy or it could affect fertility and it always kind of seemed like a little bit of a wonky even perhaps sex negative answer although of course I'm not a, a doctor so i you know, I just took it for what it was, and we we ended up just continuing to use condoms for the duration of our relationship. But I was just wondering about IUDs and whether or not that claim that um, it's necessary to avoid IUDs until after the, the birth of a, at least one child or something uh, is a valid uh, prognosis.
2: I've never heard that. Were they getting birth control advice at a Jiffy Lube or something? Where did they hear this? Where did they go? This
7: is really common. In fact, it still happens. Really? Mm-hmm. It's actually in the package insert for one of the IUDs that's readily available right now.
2: How have I not heard? Is it true? Is it bullshit? Is it good advice? Is it what Planned Parenthood recommends not to use IUDs until after your first child? It's
7: terrible advice for several reasons. First of all, there was thought in the past, um, particularly with an IUD in the 70s, that IUDs cause infection and infections cause infertility. So we've gotten away from that. have your first
2: child, that's kids enough and then you can risk an IUD and if it makes you infertile, well, you already had your first kid. That was the advice.
7: Basically, which is also why it's terrible advice because if you really thought that it caused infertility, you'd also probably want to counsel them. Don't use it until you're finished childbearing because maybe you want to have more than one child. So it was very strange. It was sort of somewhere in the middle of the road that it might cause infection, which might cause infertility. So wait until you have one kid. So, so all around kind of terrible advice. Um, and IUDs
2: don't cause infertility.
7: IUDs don't cause infection.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: And infections do cause inf- can cause infertility. But IUDs don't cause infection. Insertion of an IUD through an infected cervix can put you at risk for something called PID.
3: Mm-hmm.
7: PID, untreated, which is pelvic. pelvic inflammatory disease, untreated can cause your tubes to become blocked, which can cause infertility, which mm-hmm. is typically caused by chlamydia. So I have a very famous mentor of mine that often would say IUDs don't cause infection or actually IUDs don't cause PID, chlamydia does. And that was sort of the so running you, rhetoric. Of, so
2: so the, the advice there then would be if you're going to get an IUD inserted, get a full battery of sexually transmitted infection testing done to make sure you don't have chlamydia at the time you're having an IUD inserted.
7: Right. And we've even gone so far now is actually testing at the time of the insertion is also fine. Mm-hmm. If we detect chlamydia at the time of the insertion, we can still treat it and it will not – usually, in most cases, large percentage of cases will not result in PID. So we actually recommend if you're here for your IUD and you haven't been tested recently or at all, we'll do your IUD and your testing the same day. And, and if you
2: do have chlamydia, we we'll will treat, treat you, you at the same time we are putting the IUD in and, it'll, and you Absolutely. will be fine.
7: Yep, Exactly. So it was really around this IUDs causing infertility connection, which we've cut out the middleman of infection mm-hmm. being a result of an IUD. But the
2: advice that they got from this doctor at Jiffy Lube was bullshit.
7: It is, but it's still very, very common. I mean, it's actually still happening now that people are getting advice that they shouldn't have an IUD until they've had one child.
2: That's crazy. How have I never heard this before?
7: It's it's really common. It's becoming less common. We have lots of good um, educators out there talking about IUDs. We also have new IUDs that, that wisely took that off of the package insert. So now mm-hmm. it's also not sort of being promoted from
2: – It, it just sounds or, like the kinds of lies that the religious right and, and anti-sex social conservatives tell about condoms, that they're porous, that they offer no protection and then people don't use them. It just sounds like that kind of uh, bullshit.
7: Well, I think it. I mean, it was
2: scaremongering tactic to to keep people from using birth control at all or using this very effective form of birth control at all.
7: I mean, I think it was born out of a true fear that they did see an increase in PID in the seventies around the time that the IUD was first introduced. Mm-hmm. There's debate about these multi filament strings that maybe were wick acting as wicks to pull bacteria up. So there was an increase in infection that people saw, and it was real. And I think it really did hit home particularly with doctors who are are still practicing who saw that real time mm. um, and then there was a gap where we didn't have IUDs and we also still hear stories of my mom had an IUD and had a horrible experience so she's telling me I shouldn't get an IUD so it's being perpetuated in many parts of our culture still but still particularly from doctors where it's it really okay, should so have it was been a concern undone.
2: then it's not a concern now it's Correct. not a right wing myth bullshit like they're what they have to say about condoms or the HPV vaccine right So, it was legitimately a concern 50 years ago, 40 years ago. Exactly. But we have better IUDs now, and we know better now. We know about testing for chlamydia now. Exactly. And it's not an issue, and it shouldn't be a concern. And your doctor that the caller talked to, or that his girlfriend at the time talked to, was not up to date. Correct.
7: Or had some innate fear from the past that, you know, which people, their judgment's clouded by personal experience. So, even you can have mounting evidence and stacks of journals and if you've seen it happen, it's still sometimes hard to wrap your head around it, but it's part of our job. So,
2: to help them wrap their heads around.
7: Well, part of our job to also look for evidence and believe the evidence if we think that it's leading us in a different direction.
2: So, and one of the takeaways here would be it's not just patients that you have to educate, the Planned Parent educates, also providers.
7: Absolutely. I think our job is to be the a resource for everyone, not just for patients, but certainly for providers for families. I mean, certainly patients come in and their family members need support. But yes, we try to be a resource for everyone.
4: Hi Dan and the Tech Savvy at Risk Youth. I'm an early 40s cisgender lesbian and my question ties into something you mentioned on your podcast a month or two ago. You said that no one has ever used a dental dam. And my now wife and I use them and gloves every time we had sex for the first three months of dating until we got tested. They're very expensive. Anyway, fast forward a few years, and we've recently opened up our marriage to special guest stars, and so we thought we should bust out the gloves and dams again. All of our research says that it's a good idea. Even Planned Parenthood's website recommends it. But a lesbian friend of mine said her gynecologist told her that since you can't eliminate all skin-to-skin contact, it's pointless to use a barrier. On top of that, I've never actually known any other gay or bi-women to use protection. So are we being overly cautious?
2: So this rare bit of daylight between me and Planned Parenthood. You guys recommend dental dams? And I don't think anyone's ever actually used one in the wild, save this caller and her wife.
7: I don't know the prevalence of dental dam use. Um, I think
2: there are warehouses full of them. (laughs) over from the 80s from the, the the height of hiv panic at a time when it was right to be panicked about it uh but i don't ever remember seeing people use them for in gay male land for rimming or uh any of my lesbian friends ever for the things whatever lesbians do i don't know how, what lesbians do exactly maybe you can tell me later dr pentleggy but dental dams should the caller and her wife now that they're having very special guest stars over for three ways should they start using dental dams again with their very special guest stars are they effective?
7: I'm going to back up one one step in that. Also, the amount of literature and data on sex, women who have sex with women, and sexually transmitted diseases is none. There is none. It's just a, crickets when you try to research it online. When you try mm. to ask people, so there's really very little data. Um, so, starting there, it's hard to say scientifically what using a dental dam would do in terms of decreasing transmission.
2: Anecdotally,
7: Anecdotally, very
2: few lesbians use dental dams as she's experienced talking with her friends and they're very special guest stars. And the prevalence of STIs in the lesbian community is really, really low despite the basic non-adaptation of dental dams culturally.
7: Correct. As far as we know. Mm-hmm. As far as, I mean, if anyone's collecting that data, if people are actually reporting sexual partners... Honestly, in exams, et cetera. So it's, I think it's really hard to say exactly what the prevalence of STDs among women who have sex with women is, and what transmission looks like. However, there are definitely diseases that are that live in on mucosal surfaces that don't live on the skin.
4: Mm-hmm.
7: There are case reports of several of these being transmitted in various ways, whether it's like mother to child, um, partners transmission. So in theory, there are actually several sexually transmitted diseases that could be passed or prevented because of protecting the mucosal surfaces of the mouth and the vagina or vagina to vagina contact, but the mucosal surfaces would have to touch. Mm -hmm. So if there's a barrier there, it's possible that you are preventing gonorrhea, chlamydia, syphilis. Herpes. Trichomonas. Well, herpes is going to be one that also lives on the skin. Right. So that would be one that you could say potentially a dental dam covering just the, the mucosa is not going to – The vulva. Right.
2: Mm-hmm.
7: It can even live inner thigh, et cetera. So, um, but there are definitely ones that live inside the vagina in the moist environment of the vagina that could be potentially prevented. Again, we're talking case-reportable instances of trichomonas in the mouth – um there was a case I saw of syphilis that was transmitted from kissing um because of mouth to mouth transmission that was previously gotten from oral sex mm-hmm. on, from so another partner um so it's a t- it's you know I feel like it's a comfort level I feel like I can give you the information and you can do with it as you please. So there's it definitely
2: sexually transmitted infections that using dental dams could w- possibly prevent. Could possibly prevent the transmission of if the disease is present.
7: Correct, and the likelihood of those diseases being present is low.
2: sometimes the way we talk about this sounds like these diseases are spontaneously generated when you rub mucosa together. Right, and that's not the case. Like someone has to have gonorrhea or syphilis or chlamydia or HIV to expose you to it, potentially.
7: Right, which backs up, too. I mean, I don't know what their plans are. Of course, the safest thing would be that everyone's getting tested before any of this happens, and then you know ahead of time. Um, But there is the potential that if someone has one of those diseases, it could happen.
2: So our advice to the caller is to be the last lesbians on the planet using dental dams for their pure safety, or should they do a risk-benefit analysis and decide whether – the hassle of dental dams is worth the degree of protection that they provide.
7: I think risk benefit analysis is always going to be appropriate for people. People, I I would rather that they have the information rather than wake up one day with something like this happening, being like, I didn't know this could happen. Mm -hmm. Um, Because STIs do happen. And the, the worst part is if you don't know you have it and don't get tested and treated. So I think it's, up to them in terms of the risk benefit. Um, if they're not going to be all tested and they're not going to use dental dams, I think they should be tested more often. I think it's personal preference. There are diseases, HPV, herpes, so human papilloma virus, um, and herpes in particular that are going to be could be skin to skin contact and not prevented either. So it's not a hundred percent in any direction.
2: So the more sexual partners you have, the uh, more risk you're going to incur for a sexually trans infection assuming that you don't already have hpv or herpes which a lot of people have and don't know they have because they're asymptomatic but they have the virus uh, i i don't know what to tell the call like i was the last i was the only gay guy i knew who used condoms for oral sex in the 80s and 90s like the only one like guys would freak out that i wanted to use or condoms for oral sex because nobody did it um, so I don't want to tell the callers they're crazy, callers, so you're listening, I don't want to tell you're crazy if you're using dental dams, if that's the choice you want to make for your own comfort uh, with other people and then continue to be latex free with each other, I totally support that. I kind of did that myself. Uh, but I did that in a context where it was highly likely that the guys I was sleeping with had HIV uh, and I was not wanting to die at the time. The pool from which you're drawing your partners, the the odds that they will have a sexually transmitted infection perhaps are much lower. And if you're all testing and treated, but it's about comfort.
7: But I mean, that's what one point is definitely. I can't put a price on what this will do for your anxiety or your stress. If this is going to lead to you being incredibly stressed and anxious, um, then it's definitely you. You get to prioritize what is more valuable to you or sort of you know what your stress level is around this. Um,
2: it does occur to me that there are people out there who don't even know what a dental dam is, who don't know what we're talking about. Describe a dental dam. Dental dam 101.
7: Dental dam 101 actually also um, I think it's even on I think it's on our Planned Parenthood website also, how to make a dental dam out of a condom. Mm
2: -hmm.
7: Um, But typically it's a square piece of (laughs) DIY. Um, Typically it's a piece of latex, or if you're allergic to latex, they do have other materials. Um, uh, It's a square, typically um, probably about four inches by four inches. Um, And it's intended to be placed over any surface. It it can be placed over the rectum or over the vagina in order to create a barrier between – a person performing oral sex and that surface.
2: And people out there who complain about condoms being a pain in the ass, when you can actually put a condom on and kind of forget you have a condom on and get to business, you have to hold a dental dam in place. And in the complicated terra of of, of a vulva, that can be difficult. There are folds, there are labia, and... People that I know who've tried to use dental dams or did use dental dams, it's hard to keep track of like which side was the side that was on the vagina. Do you have to have a stack of dental dams ready to go if you're going to go back and forth between uh, other activities and uh, oral sex? You need to um, find that warehouse. Yeah, you need to find that warehouse. You need to get one of those crates or pallets of dental dams that are still somewhere moldering in New York City in a warehouse. Um, the logistics of dental dam use are, uh, are difficult. As I'm sure the caller, I'm sure you know, you guys use them once upon a time. The logistics of it can be difficult. Um, there are dental dam harnesses that you can get that actually p- stretch it out and hold it in place. If you find holding the dental dam to be distracting and annoying, you can opt for that. But
7: I'm sure there's lots of creative solutions people have come up with. But yes, using dental dams is not that user-friendly um, for sure. I think the other uh, piece is also being sure that you – that sometimes people forget is this person that's coming into your partner – with your partner could also be having other partners as well. So Mm -hmm. in terms of their risk of having an STD will hinge a lot on how much you know about their – other partners and their sexual partners. Exactly. So their risk of having an STD may not be something that you can necessarily assess as we all know. And we should assume that we can't assess that unless they've been tested or Planned
2: you know Parenthood doesn't give advice on any of your websites about how to choose the optimal three-way partner.
7: No, the I don't optimal, think so. Mm-hmm. Very special mm-hmm. guest star. Exactly. Well,
2: let's game that out for just a second.
7: Uh, I think, I think testing is one of the biggest things. In fact, actually what's really nice now is we have a um, online portal and they can get all their test results. And I often recommend to people, I'm like sometimes, you know, it's helpful to show your partners, and you can just have it on your phone. And here's all my STD testing, and, and here's sort the of, date of
2: my last test.
7: Exactly, and right there, and encourage them to do the same thing. And it's
2: and important to note that people can be exposed or infected after their last battery of tests.
7: They could also test negative and not and have been exposed and not test positive yet. So right. there's also incubation periods around.
2: So there's always risks.
7: Always risks, but I think. Also, in the in the interest of making this normal and destigmatizing, talking about sex and talking about partners and talking about STDs, is talking about STDs as often as you can and making sure that your partners are tested or that you may not want to have sex with them if and they haven't been tested. And a part of destigmatizing
2: tested. the conversation around STIs and STDs is that if someone had one and got treated and did the responsible thing, that that should not be stigmatized. If they're going to be honest with you about their sexual history and, and risks. Like part of that honesty, part of the way we want this conversation to work is, have you ever had an S yeah? Yeah. I had chlamydia. I had gonorrhea once. I got treated. Um, I have herpes, but I'm on uh, drugs that suppress it. And I haven't had an outbreak in 10 years. Like these are the conversations we need to be able to have. Like a sexually active adult who has many partners and wasn't a dugger and didn't lose a virginity and get kissed for the first time on their wedding night has never slept with anybody else uh, comes bundled with risks and, and, and history and, and past exposures. And if you can't handle that, then you should go be a dugger because that's part of being a sexually active adult is is in a mature way, handling those realities and those risks and weighing them against the rewards and benefits of a fond and sexually active life. The the, the other thing I wanted to get to about choosing the right three-way partner is the kind of person that you can have a conversation with about your sexual history that you could share your last test results with. That's someone that you know, and what a lot of people want who are couples with the, third partner is the someone they don't know to, to protect the emotional security or primacy of the relationship. They want a very special guest star that isn't in their lives or their orbit that they just met and are never going to see again. And that person comes with very little assurance about their sexual history or health because you don't know them.
7: Right. So anonymous partners definitely throw um, sort of a wrench in that game. And I, again, I think it becomes Risk-benefit analysis, are you going to be able – is this going to stress you out that you're having sex with anonymous partners and not using any protection?
2: Um, And you have to weigh the physical risks versus the emotional risks. And if it's an unknown anonymous partner that you dragged off the internet, there's going to be greater physical risk there, greater risk of exposure, sexually transinfection, whatever. Um, If what really is important to you is uh, emotional protection, then you're going to want that anonymous partner. But if you want more physical protection – Better to have three-way with somebody that you know and trust.
7: And if you already – I mean it also goes back to – I mean you may already have herpes. Do you want to disclose to these new people that you have herpes? I mean there's – and you may already have it. So getting it from someone else would be less of a risk but you transmitting it to someone else. I think there's a lot of things that probably should be discussed beforehand um, even if it's an anonymous partner in terms of how you want to proceed with your sex life. But it basically comes down to your comfort level. I've given you the, hopefully given you the information and the tools to make a, a decision <laughs> that feels need, right for you. Now we just
2: need to get the three-way section up on the Planned Parenthood website.
7: Right, right, how to choose
2: the best. Just to piss off the religious right a little bit more.
7: Yep, I would, we, could, we
2: maybe could work
10: on that. <laughs> Hi, I'm a straight female calling from the Pacific Northwest, and I have a sexual health and kind of an etiquette question. Uh, when my partner and I first got together years ago, um, he had genital warts, which he told me about. We had a discussion about it. And, you know, and I had had uh, a form of HPV and i had also had the Gardasil vaccine. So at the time, I was, you know, so that was OK and it didn't bother me. And we're still together years later and uh, I haven't contracted his warts, but he still has them. And he said he's been treated before but it wasn't effective and it was very painful and then they came back. So um, my issue is two things. One is that I don't know how, like, I don't know what my risk is um, into the future of contracting them. I'm assuming if I haven't had it by now that I'm fine, but I don't know if the vaccine loses its effectiveness or how that works. And it's also the second issue is just that it's it's a huge turn off for me to think about that there's, you know, well, he doesn't have very many of them and they're still like thinking about it if we're having sex that they're inside me or if he wants me to give him a blowjob that my mouth is going to be touching them. And that really turns me off If you're just, you know, sitting there looking at them. And um, so we've had discussions about it where, you know, I really asked him very directly to... Uh, if he would consider getting treated and uh, as his partner, I would really appreciate it and that could be a turnoff and, I, you know, like I have health questions about it. And, and we've had discussions several times, but nothing has changed. So am I at at risk from them? And is it reasonable, even if I'm not, to ask him to get treated for it again? And if it is, if you have any tips for effectively approaching it, it's uh, I'm not being nagging and it's not becoming a huge issue because I'm not going to break up with him over it, but it would be so nice to get it resolved.
2: All right. Should she be letting this dude stick his warty dick in her vagina and her mouth?
7: So the presence of genital warts from everything I could find does not increase her chances of getting HPV because the HPV is going to be on the skin whether the genital warts are there or not.
2: And she's vaccinated against HPV infection.
7: And she either and she also could have been. I don't know what her exposure was before she got the vaccine. So she could either have antibodies from a previous exposure to mm-hmm. his or to two genital warts or to the types of HPV which are typically six and eleven that cause genital warts. Or that those are two of the strains that are in the vaccine. So it's very possible that she is immune or has antibodies against the 6 or 11 strains. Which is how
2: she's been able to suck this warty dick all these years without contracting. Exactly. Coming down with warts herself.
7: And while visibly and visually upsetting to her, the HPV will technically still be on the skin. And from what I can tell in all of my research that... The presence of the warts actually is not going to increase her likelihood of getting... So am
2: I being irrationally squeamish when I say I wouldn't put a warty dick in my mouth?
7: I still think that there's um, discussion that needs to be had about... I mean, there's lots of discussions about personal hygiene that people have around having sex. And I can understand why that would be uncomfortable for her. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think I understand his rationale that getting them removed can be painful. I think there are ways to make it less painful. So I don't think he's necessarily explored all of his options in terms of getting them removed. However, in terms of a health risk, it doesn't actually seem to be an increased health risk for her.
2: I don't want her sucking that warty dick anymore. I just, this is a basic matter of simple consideration even if there isn't a health risk because the uh, hpv will be present on the skin warts or no warts because she's been vaccinated perhaps against the strain that that he has and hence no uh she hasn't contracted or come down with warts herself still still dude should get the warts off his dick if he wants to put his dick in things just as a general sort of like baseline
7: it's clearly affecting their relationship it's affecting so- me
2: and i'm nowhere near his dick I'm like curled up in the fetal position on the floor in my – my spirit animal is curled up in the fetal position on the floor right now listening to this call.
7: I mean there are lots of physical things that people get over in order to have sex with their partners. Um, Again, it sounds like it's affecting their relationship. I think, again, he hasn't necessarily explored all of his options in terms of finding a more pain-free way to get them removed
2: your last doctor took them off with pliers, maybe you should find a new doctor.
7: Right. There's numbing medicine that can be applied. There's even instances where we give you some sedation if it's necessary, depending on the location of the warts,
2: Mm
7: -hmm. um, which sound like they are on his penis, which I understand could be a very painful place to have them removed. I've removed warts from penises before. It can be really painful. But uh, yeah, I think at the end of the day, from a health perspective, it's probably not an increased risk from a relationship perspective. It might be putting their relationship at risk.
2: Should we game out for her some language she can use when she approaches him to let him know she's not sucking his dick anymore until he gets his ass to Planned Parenthood and has those warts removed? Well, I think uh, I'm a little flabbergasted that that she uh, it feels so inhibited a- addressing this issue with him, uh, and he feels so entitled to have his dick sucked, warts or no warts, warts there are warts, uh, and yet she doesn't feel like she can broach this subject.
7: Again, I've, I feel like there's a lot more of a relationship dynamic that's at play here more than um a health issue Mm -hmm. but i mean first of all i do think that there are uh, there are other options i think the fact that it was painful before can be something that can be addressed and so at least going in to talk to someone to say i would like these removed i really had a terrible experience last time what can we do differently and hopefully they give him some options that are more
2: does not removing warts make you at higher risk for developing more warts they um, like mushrooms?
7: Not necessarily. There are um, – you can – if they come in contact with other skin. So a lot of times what you'll see is particularly on like the labia is that you'll have matching sort of lesions on mm-hmm. either side. So if the lesion touches an area of skin that doesn't – didn't previously have HPV, you can have a matching lesion on the other side. I'm not sure that his penis is coming in contact with other skin to necessarily – in a way that would necessarily transmit it. But yes, you can have spreading of the warts.
2: As a person with a penis, you're always kind of like jamming your penis up with your nuts together and underwear and parts of your penis are always pressed up against different parts of your penis, depending on the day and how you've shifted and arranged yourself at that moment for your comfort. So it seems like the wart spreading would be a considerable risk. If that's the
7: case. For sure. Then yes, as someone without a penis, I can't necessarily (laughs) speak to that.
2: (laughs) I am here to speak for the penis havers, but Caller, let's just talk to the caller for a second. Sure. You have a right to go to your boyfriend, higher risk or no risk of you developing warts or not, and say and, and say to him, "This is just grossing me out. This is icky." Not to shame you about having a sexually transmitted infection, but I'm going to shame you for not getting it treated. You have a responsibility to get to seek treatment and to fucking ova up and plow through the treatment so that you can put a wart-free dick in my mouth. And up my snatch. Jesus Christ, that's not too much to ask. I the, think that I And it's I way and to say to him, it's weighing on me. It's making me not want to have sex.
7: Yes, I would want to empower her. You're not irrational to want to have this discussion with him to ask him to have a discussion.
2: The issuance of an ultimatum. If she wants it to be. I want it to be. Okay. I want it to be. I need it to be. I need her to call me back in a couple of weeks and tell me that that's how it went That she down. put her foot down? That okay. she did ask him to do her a very special favor. She made seeking treatment and getting the warts scraped off his fucking dick finally. Necessary. A condition on that dick going inside her body ever again.
7: I can see that being um, important for her. So I, I definitely want to empower her to do that. Um, He's not entitled to
2: put his dick in you.
7: Right. No, that's not. No. She has every right for any reason to say, right. I don't want
2: your... to set conditions... And and issue ultimatums about the circumstances under which a dick goes in.
7: Absolutely. I think... I speak
2: as someone who gets dicks put in him. Like you get to say when and where and how and to rule out dick that you don't want in you for whatever reason. Absolutely. And covered in warts is a very good and legitimate reason to rule a dick out. Even a boyfriend's dick.
7: I agree. Um, I would uh, say that you can encourage him to seek other options for treatment, that the treatment that he had was maybe not the only option available to him. Um, And that it's very likely that they won't come back. I think his other argument was that he got treated and they just came back. Um, So that's another option, but also that it could get worse, that this isn't just a stable um, condition.
2: With HPV, as I understand, you can have warts removed and you can, and, and they will come back and you need to like stay on top of that and keep having them removed. And eventually they will stop coming back
7: it depends. Every I think everyone's different. A lot of it depends on immune system. The other thing I was going to say which wasn't brought up um smoking can be a really big risk factor for um one's ability to get rid of HPV. So mm-hmm. if that's that's another thing potentially he's doing that could also be beneficial both for his genital warts and general health. Um but I think yeah, I think if, you know, if this is really bothering her, she needs to say that's not going inside me until It's been treated.
2: And if you won't get treated, then we're dump the motherfucker already territory. And you're going to have to DTMFA. Get yourself some more considerate dick.
3: Hi, Jan and the tech savvy at risk youth. I am calling you from the Hawaiian Islands. And I have a question. My husband likes a certain style of surf shorts that he can only find at the youth clothing store. And a friend of his that is, works in a health profession told him that there is a strain of uh, gonorrhea going around the island that is very powerful and hard to kill by, um, by any antibiotic. And he said that my husband was at risk of contracting this by wearing
11: used shorts.
3: And I thought this would be a great, question. Um, I always wash his stuff when he brings it home from the thrift store. And I'm just wondering, is there any chance that he could contract an STI through
7: a clothing?
2: So how many times have you gotten gonorrhea from an article of clothing from a thrift store? Never. Me either. Is this an actual concern?
7: I can't find any case reports of people uh, contracting gonorrhea from used clothing.
2: So this is just another case in and of itself of your doctor is an idiot.
7: There is a drug-resistant strain of gonorrhea around, and it can be very hard to kill. That is a true statement. Contracting any gonorrhea, multi-drug resistant or not, from used clothing is not something I have ever seen or counseled anyone about. I did try to think back the last time I ever purchased a bathing suit and or underwear from a thrift store. Um, but but also you might think that you would potentially, if you had gonorrhea, give it back to yourself if it was in your own clothing, which didn't also
2: it, – It's a gonorrhea hall of mirrors at this point. It doesn't make any sense. It's just not true. No, People don't get sexually transmitted infections from clothing. from clothing, from used clothing. You'd have to have somebody who's mopping up the the, the pussy discharge that comes with gonorrhea with their underpants or with their swimsuit. And then you'd have to instantly apply that sopping wet pussy pair of underpants or that swimsuit to your swimsuit area, which no one would ever do.
7: Well, that being said, bacteria, we do know bacteria live on, even on dry surfaces, can live thousands of years probably, millennia. Oh no, millennia. You're ruining
2: it for me. Now I can never wear a secondhand thrift store swimsuit ever again.
7: However, soap is antibacterial. All soap. In fact, that there was statements coming out that they really can't market soap as antibacterial soap because all soap is antibacterial. It destroys the walls of bacteria when you wash things in soap. So, in some far fetched theory, yes, maybe there's gonorrhea on you know maybe this is some sci fi movie for the future of gonorrhea on some pair of underwear that gets unearthed and then somebody puts it on and ends up with this drug resistant gonorrhea.
2: That's However, a great sci fi treatment. Right. We should.
7: Uh, yeah, I don't know. I'm going to
2: call my Hollywood friends and make the <laughs> the time traveling gonorrhea underpants uh, a thing that have Netflix. We're coming for you.
7: You know, it could be it could, some people might find it interesting. No, I love it, um, but I would say basically the general rule here should be that you wash everything, particularly things that are going to touch your swimsuit wearing parts. Um, I'm
2: still stuck in the sci fi thing. It's like a, the sisterhood of the traveling pants, but underpants and gonorrhea instead of jeans and good feelings.
7: I like it. I like it. I do too. too. Um, but so that being said, I sort of went down to sort of this path of well, bacteria can live on surfaces, and it's possible, I guess, that it is on any surface and potentially could find its way to a place where it can grow and thrive. However, I think taking one step back, as long as you're washing your clothes in
2: soap, it's it not going to re- if it was that easily transmitted. Right? Would be everyone very, would fucking exactly. have it, and everyone fucking doesn't. Correct. Dr. Sarah Petlicky, thank you so much for coming on, and thank you and everyone at Planned Parenthood for all the work that you guys do uh, in tough circumstances and at a time when you guys are being demagogued about actively by assholes.
7: Thank you. Yeah, I love my job, so I'm and happy to be here and really help
2: appreciative. Out. And thank you for coming in. Thanks. Thank you for demeaning yourself by coming on my potty mouth program to talk about hardly sex
7: hardly my pleasure.
1: Yes, I am a Magnum subscriber, and I'd like to comment on episode five six two. The lady thinking about turning in boyfriend for to uh, Child Protective Services, that call kind of horrified me, just the fact that a messy house would rise to the... Uh, to me, it does not rise to the level of abuse, abandonment, neglect. I would really question her motivation. How did she feel about her boyfriend living with his ex-wife? I think that's the important thing here. A messy house... Is, I have a messy house with two wonderful, very intelligent children. And it probably even smells. It probably smells of unwashed dog. But that does not an abuser make. Very, very far from it. And when you consider what happens to a person's life when they are turned into protective services, it's just not worth it. You need to find a very specific instance of abuse, abandonment, neglect. Messy house, hoarder does not cut it.
11: I want to leave a comment for the caller in episode 562, the woman whose sister is coming to stay and she's worried about her being judged or a reaction of the sister to her sleeping with an older neighbor. Speaking from experience as an older sister accused of being judgmental, it might be that your sister was just looking out for you and wanted to make sure you were with someone who makes you happy and won't take advantage of you. Like Dan said, now you're older, that issue may be completely irrelevant or if she does express any worry about you, it doesn't necessarily mean she thinks you're an idiot or that you're a child unable to make her own decisions. You don't have to make any apologies for who you choose to hang out with, but maybe don't see it as a personal attack if your sister expresses concern. Just reassure her that you feel happy and safe and you know what you're up to. The other thing to be mindful of is that your sister might just be coming to town to see you and hang out with you. Any discussion about sleeping arrangements may have nothing to do with who you're fucking. More about the times of a sleepover, like sharing a bottle of wine or a morning cup of coffee in your pajamas. They're lovely moments They will be interrupted if you're going somewhere else to sleep and leave her in your house.
6: Hey, Dan. I'm calling in response to episode 562 and the woman feeling scripted in a cuckold relationship. I'm the bottom in a gay cuckold relationship and have for sure been guilty of giving a script to my man before, too. Dan's right, we have all these particular fantasies, but sometimes it's even hotter to be forced out of that fantasy by your partner. There's one trick that you can do that may very well help get both of you what you really want. Your cuckold partner actually probably wants you to take control, give commands, and enjoy your sex more fully than you do with your partner. So try admonishing him for being needy and telling him to give you space. Turn it around on the cuckold. When they get pushy, say, look, this is my sex, not yours. You'll get what you get when you get it. And if you don't like that, I'll still get what I want, and you'll get nothing. If you take charge in a forceful way, you'll likely get what you want, the freedom of spontaneity, and your cuck will get what he or she wants by having that lack of control and jealousy. Win-win for both of you.
2: And we're not going to leave it there quite yet. We want you guys to support Planned Parenthood the way Planned Parenthood supports you guys, Planned Parenthood is there for you. Be there for them at this moment. It is particularly important. Join me in going to PlannedParenthood.org, clicking donate and throwing some money their way. I know people sometimes feel like if you don't have $500 or $1,000 to donate, that it's not worth your time or trouble. If you can only spare five bucks, why bother? You should bother, even if it's just five bucks, because an organization like Planned Parenthood, it's not just about the amount of money they raise, it's about the number of supporters they have out there in the world, the number of donors they have out there in the world. They can point to those numbers, the amount raised from the big donors and the small donors, but also the number of donors, the amount of support that they have out there to refute the lies told about them, about this worthy and wonderful organization by the rights. So even if you can only spare five bucks, go to plannedparenthood.org and throw that five bucks their way. All right, that's where we're going to leave it. 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Savage Lovecast. If you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show, give us a buzz. 206-302-2064. Go to itmfa.org. Impeachthemotherfuckeralready.com. And buy a hat, a lapel pin, a t-shirt, a bumper sticker, a button. All proceeds benefit Planned Parenthood, the International Refugee Assistance Project, and the American Civil Liberties Union, ITMFA.org. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. Follow Planned Parenthood on Twitter at PPACT. And a big thank you to Dr. Sarah Pentlicky from Planned Parenthood for coming on today and fielding medical questions with me. She was awesome, and we hope to have her back in soon. The Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me and the tech savvy at risk youth and Nancy, all of us in our ITMFA t-shirts. We'll be back at you next week in our installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.